0: Our Holy Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace that you've lavished on us. God, thank you that you've set us free from the bondages of sin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took all of our guilt and all of our shame upon yourself and exchanged for your righteous life. And how incredible is it that you declared us righteous, and right now you're making us righteous. And you who began a good work in us will finish it. Lord, help us to realize this truth. Help us in our lives to keep our eyes on you. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we open up the word, can you help us to understand? Can you open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds? Help us to hear the word. Help us to understand the word. Lord, can you preach a better sermon than what I've prepared for? Can you help us to walk out of here just in awe of you as we see how you are writing our stories and how our stories can be powerful tools of inviting people to look to you. So come, Lord, and speak to us and make yourself known. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John chapter 4. Um, a couple of announcements that I do have. Don't forget, uh, next week is those Thanksgiving baskets that are due. So if you haven't signed up for a Thanksgiving basket, you can go to the info center and sign up for that. And then all the items in the basket um, will be in a little sheet that you can grab, and then you can bring all those goodies um, by next Sunday. And then the following Saturday, I think it's the 20th, That's when we'll or the 21st, that's when we'll distribute those things. Thanksgiving baskets and then also mark your calendar if you are a covenant member mark your calendar for December 5th uh, that is our next member gathering and so our member gathering is a time for us uh, really as, as a family to come together to reflect and celebrate all that the Lord has done at the end of the year uh, that's we're talking about how the Lord has blessed us uh, with these resources and how we've u- utilized these resources for his glory and for his mission and then we're also going to talk about the budget of twenty. Twenty-two, and so if you're a covenant member, and uh, you, I, I am. Well, I'm not going to beg you, but I'm going to urge you to participate. If you've never participated in any of our member gatherings, I want to highly encourage you. This is a wonderful time for us to come together. And if you kind of feel always out of the loop and you don't know what's going on, part of the reason is because you're not participating in member gathering. And so it is vital for you to come participate. So mark your calendar, December 5th, and that's going to be at 6 o'clock. Let's get into the Word. So we're in John chapter 4, verse 27, uh, as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, in the Gospel of John, what John is trying to accomplish, he, he's wanting to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his purpose of showing us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, is to invite us in to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now now, last week we're, we were introduced in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. And what John really is doing is he's contrasting uh, between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. From chapter 3, we know that Nicodemus was a learned, a powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained man. The Samaritan woman was unschooled, without influence, and she was despised. Nicodemus was a Jewish man and a ruler among his people, and yet she was a Samaritan woman and a moral outcast. And what's interesting is you think these people have nothing in common, and yet what John shows us, both of them need Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he travels through Samaria and he's sitting at this well and he meets this woman he asks this woman for a drink and this woman is so shocked that Jesus would actually talk to her and ask her for a drink and in response Jesus offers this woman living water and this living water that he offers her is this eternal satisfying life. And this living water does not remove the thirst and, uh, of her life, the aching in her soul, but rather it fulfills and rather it satisfies. And this woman is very skeptical because all she can see is a weary Jewish traveler asking for a drink. But then all of a sudden, Jesus turned it personal and confronted her in her sin and really showing her why she needs this living water. And all of a sudden, now she sees more than just a weary Jewish traveler, but maybe he is a prophet. And so she tries to test this prophet. If he truly is a prophet, maybe he'll be able to provide clarity on one of the most theological contentions of their day, the place of worship. Do we worship where the Jews say we worship, or do we worship where the Samaritans say we worship? Both of them kind of have scriptural evidence for their argument. And Jesus, in a sense, addresses that, but he speaks with so much authority in answering this question that now all of a sudden she's thinking, wait a minute, maybe he's more than just a prophet. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be able to clarify everything and explain everything. And Jesus responded without needing an invitation. He says to this woman, I who speak to you am he the one who's at the well, asking her for a drink is none other than the promised Messiah. And so not only could he offer her this living water, but he could actually provide for her this living water. And this woman on her own would have never have met the Messiah, and yet the Messiah came and met her where she was in life, and her life will be forever changed. And so in a sense, salvation had come to this woman's life. And what we're going to see through her testimony, she would go in and point others to the one who saves. And I think one of the things we can learn from our passage is this story reminds us that our stories that God is currently writing are are powerful tools to proclaim the goodness of God and the message of this gospel. So so let's see how her story points others to the one who saves. Look at John chapter 4, verse 27. It says this: Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman, yet no one said, What do you want, or why are you talking with her? So the disciples, after uh, coming back from town, purchasing food, they're seeing Jesus talking to this woman, and they are shocked. They are amazed. And so their unvoiced concerns uh, of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman really reflect the prejudice of the day. That's just how their culture was. That's how things were done. Jewish men do not talk to women. Jewish men do not talk to Samaritans. And certainly Jewish men do not talk to Samaritan women. But Jesus was like no other man. Because Jesus didn't care about the social convention or the appearances. Jesus cared more about people. And you think by now the disciples following Jesus, they would have been used to Jesus not doing things the normal way or the social convention way. He, he takes water and he turns it into wine. He goes to the temple and he clears it and he cleanses it and he says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And yet they seem very surprised every time that Jesus would move outside of their normal ways of doing things. But yet despite their shock in the situation, they kind of restrain themselves of not asking Jesus these questions. But yet in their mind and in their heart is swirling with all of these questions. Look at verse 28 how this woman responds when the disciples came. Verse 28 says this, Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And so as the disciples came, just like that, the woman was gone. She left so quickly that she left her water jar. For the very reason of why she was coming to the well was to draw water from the well and to take that water back home and now she's leaving that water jar behind. And the reason why she's leaving this water jar behind is because she thought she came to the well for one kind of water, but she kind of came, she found a different kind of water, a living water, because she left her water jar behind because now the, the thirst of her soul was quenched. The aching in her heart, the desire that she felt was quenched. She discovered this living water. And what is striking is not the fact that she left her water jar behind, even though it is striking, but what is striking is her eagerness to bear witness towards the very townspeople she spent all of her energy to avoid. Like, like, like think about this. Like, the woman came at noon. You don't draw water at noon. And the reason why she did it was to, to avoid people. Because every time she runs into people and every time the people look at her deep down inside, she kind of felt this guilt and the shame. And she feels like everybody is judging her and condemning her because of her lifestyle. And so the very people she was trying to avoid and want nothing to do, now all of a sudden, with eagerness to the town, she says, come see a man who told me everything I have ever done. And I think it's so fascinating, her declaration, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Not, not, come see, I found the Messiah, but come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And I think maybe the reason why she does it is because her messy, sinful life was central it was kind of her identity. She, she just kind of saw herself of, this is who I am. This is what I've done. That defines me. Uh, and my whole world revolves around it. Everything I do revolves around this guilt and that shame that I'm carrying around. This is why I avoid people. This is why I want nothing to do with people. And now Jesus comes and he confronts me of everything and lay, and, 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 and lay my sin out all in the open. And so when Jesus confronted her, her sin was now in the open and she no longer had to hide. And so now she's inviting others in to come see a man who in a sense have dealt with my guilt and my shame. Now, now think about this. The text does not say, hey, come see a man who's dealt with my guilt and shame. Rather, the text says, come and see a man who told me what I have ever did. So you're like, okay, where do you get the whole guilt and shame thing? Well, 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 think about this. What causes us to run away from God? What causes us to run away from people? What causes us not wanting to confront certain things? Guilt. Shame. Like the the reason we're constantly hiding, the reason why we're constantly putting up this facade is we don't want people to really know the real me. We don't really want people to see what's actually going on in our hearts and minds because of guilt and shame. And so this is what's going on in this woman's life. She's covered with guilt and shame. And how does Jesus deal with her guilt and shame? Well, think about this. What did Jesus offer her? Jesus offered her living water. And so Jesus knew everything about her. He knew exactly what she's done in the past, what kind of lifestyle she's living now, and yet he offers her living water. He doesn't, in a sense, say, Hey, I know what you've done. Before you can drink of this living water, you need to do better, you need to try harder. This is unacceptable. This lifestyle does not please God. Go and fix it. Then you can come back and drink this water. But what happened? What did Jesus do? Despite knowing everything about her, despite her lifestyle, despite all of her guilt and all of her shame, he offers her this living water. He does not condemn her. He does not judge her. But rather he says, here's this living water. It's found in me. Drink it in a sense. And as Jesus exposes all of her sin, without condemning her, without judging her, he sets her free of her guilt and her shame. And later on, when Jesus would go to the cross, for who would he die? He would die for this woman. He would die in her place. He would die and take on her punishment, her guilt, her shame, her condemnation. He would satisfy God's wrath that was standing over her in exchange for his life, for her life, her unrighteousness, for Jesus' righteousness, so that she could be declared righteous in the sight of God. And another way of looking at she could be declared as if she's never done anything wrong. And in a sense, this woman understands that no longer I have to carry this guilt and the shame. Come see a man who's taken care of my guilt and my shame. And I think it's even relevant for us today. Like we're constantly hiding because we're overwhelmed by our guilt and shame. We care more what people think about us. We're petrified of every look that we're getting or every thumbs up or thumbs down that we're getting because of all this guilt and this shame. And then yet Jesus doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say, hey, you need to just do better and try harder. But rather he offers you this living water while you're still in your sin. But he doesn't ignore your sin. He confronts it. He lays it out in the open. And then he pays for it by dying in your place, taking on your punishment, taking on your condemnation, taking on God's wrath that was was standing over you so that you can have life and be declared righteous. And this is what this woman is saying. And her conclusion to this invitation with confidence is, could this be the Messiah? This perceived stranger who knows everything I've ever done is clearly more than a prophet. And he's even alluding to himself as the Messiah. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? And so if you're taking notes, we see how this woman is responding to meeting Jesus. And I think there's something we can learn, especially when it comes to us meeting Jesus, when it comes to us sharing what Jesus has done for us. If you're taking notes as this, the first one is come and see is the call of the gospel, Come and see is the call of the gospel. It's a call that we see throughout Scripture. It is a call to know and experience the grace and love of God. Like, like this was her message. Come and see. This should be our message as we point others to Christ. So so, so that means, like, like what is our message? It's not always to defend Christ, because I do believe Christ can defend himself. It's not for us to know all the answers about Christ, but rather for us to invite others in to come and see for yourself. Look to Jesus. Look at who he is, what he has done. And this is what she does. She just simply invites the town people who she's avoided to say, come and see this man. Come and see the Christ. And because of her message, people were coming to see this man whom she spoke of. And, and again, we don't know why. Perhaps they were impressed by her excitement and her openness. Perhaps they saw something different. Uh, maybe she used to avoid everyone. She never smiled. She always kept to herself. And now something happened. Something's changed. There's almost this new life inside of her. And out of curiosity, they wanted to see for herself who this man is that she has met. And as they began to what make their way uh, to the well, John now changes the scene where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And so look at this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as the Samaritans are making their way to the well. Verse 31 says this, in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. So as the Samaritans are making their way to the well, Jesus' disciples are like, hey, we went into town, We went to go buy food, you need to eat because we have a long journey ahead of us. We're about at the halfway mark. We are all tired in this dead heat of the sun. You need to eat. But Jesus, in a sense, had different priorities. He had more than just lunch on the mind, and, and he uses these circumstances to teach his disciples his own priorities. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And just like the Samaritan woman thinking that Jesus was talking about literal water, the disciples were talk, thinking about Jesus was talking about literal food. And in their minds, they're thinking, wait, wait a second here. The only reason we went into town was to buy food. And now you're saying you have other food? Like who fed you this lunch? Why did we even go into town to buy this food? Somebody must have brought them food. But Jesus promptly tells them this that his food is to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. In other words, what's the food of Jesus is to do the very work of God, to do the will of God, to walk in obedience. Like what does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean we know we no longer eat No, I think Jesus was alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses addresses Israel, and he seeks to explain God to them. He says this, he, that's God, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Like, what does Moses mean by that? Does he mean that we should, we should kind of diversify the food we're eating? Don't just eat bread, but also eat meat and veggies? No, I, I think what he means by that is just as food is important for survival, because what does food do? It nourishes the body, in a sense, satisfies the body. But what's even more important to nourish the body and satisfy the body is to actually nourish and satisfy the soul. And the only way you can do it is through the Word of God, by walking in obedience and dependent on Him for who He is. Bread is important. But God is even more important. Just as bread satisfies the body, so the Word of God satisfies the soul. It nourishes it, and without it, you will starve and die. And it's even an eternal satisfaction, because think about food. What does food do? It nourishes and it satisfies until you're hungry again. And yet the Word of God nourishes us continually. And satisfies us eternally. And this is what Jesus is telling him, that his work is to do the work of God. And in his dealing with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing the Father's well, which means there's, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in that than any food could ever offer. And what he was demonstrating to his disciples was the spiritual principle, if you're taking note, is this, Gospel work nourishes and satisfies the soul. Gospel work, or the work of God, nourishes and satisfies the soul. Just as food nourishes and satisfies the body, so the work of God nourishes and satisfies the soul. Do you feel run down? Do you feel empty? Is there a yearning in your soul? Then start feeding it. Feed it with the Word of God. Feed it with the work of God. Walk in obedience to His will and His commands. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let your soul be satisfied and nourished. I think the reason why Christians are dead. Which is kind of an oxymoron because we were dead and now we're made alive in Christ. But the reason why we're on life support is because we're not doing the work of God. We're doing the work of self. We're so consumed with feeding our bellies that we're neglecting our soul. Our whole life revolves around earning money to feed our bellies. And yet our our life doesn't revolve, revolve around doing the work of God to nourish and satisfy our souls. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. But then he also wants them, as he's teaching them this principle, he also wants them to see the urgency of the work that he is doing. Look, look at verse 35. This is what he says. Don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor, for others have labored, and you've benefited from their labor. So Jesus' essence is saying, like, you think a certain gap must exist between sowing and reaping, between sowing and harvesting, but I am telling you the truth. Look around. Harvesting is taking place right now. And after Jesus told his disciples that this harvesting, that this work of God, this gospel work nourishes and satisfies the soul, now he's inviting them to participate in the good work, which leads us to our third principle. If you're taking notes, that there is great joy and reward for this gospel work. As he's showing them the urgency and inviting them in to participate, he's also telling them not only does this gospel work nourish and satisfy the soul, but there is a great joy, a great reward in this gospel work. Look at verse 36 again. It says, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. They're already receiving pay as they're gathering fruitfully eternal life. And what happens to the sower and the reaper? They rejoice together. There is great reward. There is great joy in doing the work of God. And so, for the disciples in their time, they were called to harvesting. And their fruitfulness to harvesting was made possible because of people that have gone before them. If you really think about the the redemptive history, there were prophets and righteous leaders who've gone before Jesus to do the work of God, prepare the soil. Think about John the Baptist. What was his goal? His goal, his whole mission, his whole purpose was to prepare the road, make straight the path for the Messiah's coming. His message was repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then when Jesus came, everything changed. As he came, now people started running towards him. The kingdom was growing and Jesus was inviting his disciples to participate in it. And in a sense, we are invited to participate in this gospel work. We might not be the harvesters as the disciples were. We could be the sowers or the harvesters. But it doesn't matter for there is great reward and great joy for both. And so the Samaritans seem like one of the most unlikely converts. And yet I find it interesting that this Samaritan woman is the, is the first clear example of conversion in the book of John. And now we're going to see how these Samaritans made their way to hear about this man that this woman was talking about. Look at verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know this is really the Savior of the world. So the testimony of this Samaritan woman made the townspeople want to know this man that she spoke of. In a a sense, they kind of believed. They saw her life and they came to him. And they wanted to know more based on what they've seen and what they heard. And the fact that that these Samaritan people would actually invite a Jewish rabbi to stay with them for two more days kind of shows us the degree of confidence that Jesus has earned among them, but also the conviction that he could possibly be the promised Messiah. And when Jesus stayed there for two days, even though John doesn't tell us what happened during those two days, the harvest extended and more people believed. But notice this, this is very important. Why did they believe? Look at verse 41. More people believed... Not because of what the woman had said, but rather because of who said it. Verse 41 says, many more believe because of what he said. In other words, this woman's story kind of made them curious. But they didn't believe because of this woman's story. They might have come and drawn near. But rather they believed because of what Jesus had said. They believed because of his word. And John tells us the words of Jesus is the words of God. They believe because of the word of God. They've heard for themselves. They've judged her witness to be true. And I think it's important for us to understand people do not believe because of our testimony. People do not believe because of our invitation. People believe because of the word of God. It is in the word of God that they believe. And without the word of God, they cannot believe. And their conclusion, their response to the very words of God, the very words of the Savior is this. Clearly, this must be the Savior of the world. I love verse 42. And they, they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Since we've heard for ourselves. And we know this reality. That he really is the Savior of the world. This is a new title that John uses, and it's an appropriate title. And it's a profound title that the Samaritans would use it. Like, like, why would the Samaritans really say he is the Savior of the world? Perhaps maybe they were so amazed that this Jewish Messiah is also their Messiah. Perhaps they had such confidence that his salvation will extend to the furthest reaches of the earth. But either way, it was appropriate that this title, Savior of the World, should be applied to Jesus in the context of, of his ministry amongst the Samaritans. Because what it does, is it kind of represented this cross-cultural evangelism undertaken by Jesus and will really be shown a pattern for the church. Because Jesus looked at his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8, and he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you follow Jesus' traveling, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, where was he? Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, where did he go? He moved into the Judean countryside. And then from the Judean countryside, where did he move? On his way to, get to Galilee, and he went through Samaria. And we see the intention of Jesus showing the model to the church that this salvation is not just extended to the Jews but to the entire world. And it's just so fascinating how the most unlikely of converts, Samaritans, if a Jewish reader had to read it, he would say, I can believe in a lot of things. I don't know if I can believe in that. I can believe that Jesus walked on water but Samaritans being saved? Uh Uh-uh. And yet John shows us Look at how powerful the Savior is. Oh, by the way, He is the Savior of the world. So so, so let's wrap it up here. Application. I think the very first thing that this passage can kind of teach us is the urgency of the gospel. Like God is working, and He is inviting us in to participate in what He is doing. God does not need us. He can work despite us. He can work around us. But somehow in His sovereign grace, He is inviting you in to participate in what He is doing. He is drawing men, women, and children to Himself as He's inviting us in to share in this mission. And so what we have to understand is that This story that God is writing in your life right now, to you it might seem insignificant, but his story that he's writing in your life is a powerful tool to invite others in to come and see that the Lord is good. Your story does not save people. Jesus does. But your story certainly Is God's story to invite others in to come and see how good the Lord is. And just like this Samaritan woman, our transformed lives should point others to Jesus. They shouldn't point others to self. They should point others to Jesus. Our stories do not have the power to save, but they certainly have the power to draw people in to want to know more about Jesus. And I think the, the second thing, the third thing that we kind of in a sense can learn is this, this woman's story reminds us of how the gospel saves all kinds of people, even the most unlikeliest of people. You see, to us as we're reading the story, we're Samaritans. That's just a title we know nothing about. And we're thinking, well, big deal. But think about the original audience that read the gospel of John. Think about the Jewish audience that were reading it scratching their head because their buddy Nicodemus couldn't cut it. This Samaritan woman? Nicodemus needed more time to process Jesus. This Samaritan woman gives up everything and says, come see a man who's told me about all of my sin. He is the Messiah. How could Nicodemus not see it? But the Samaritan woman can see it. And the point of what John is making it's like, look how the Lord is working. Look how he's calling and drawing the people in, even people that you think are the least likeliest. So what does it call us to do? It calls us to open up our eyes and look around. That people you think are far away from God, people you think that the Lord cannot save, he's drawing them. And he could be using you and your story to invite them in to come and see. Just open your eyes and look around. Open up your heart in prayer and ask the Lord to work in them. Then lift up your hands. Get off your chairs. Get busy with the work and say, come and see what the Lord is doing. For this work satisfies your soul. For this work it is an important work and there is a great reward and a great joy in this work. Let me pray for us and then we get to sit at the table. Our heavenly Father, I thank you that you save and that you draw in the most unlikeliest of people. People that are far away from you, people that we think doesn't qualify. And yet you meet them where they are you deal with their guilt and their shame you do not condemn them you offer them living water and you die for them and lord if we're honest we're like the samaritan woman in a sense we are unlikely people to be saved and yet you came and you took on flesh And you walked among us and you did not condemn us but you invited us in to this living water you took care of our guilt and shame on the cross you paid for our sins in full you died in our place you exchanged your righteousness for our unrighteousness so that we can be declared righteous Lord, help us to feed on your word. Help us to feed on you, Lord Jesus, so that it may nourish and satisfy our souls. Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know what we're going through. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're experiencing. You know our deepest, darkest secret there is nothing hidden from you you see us for who we truly are you see us for what we truly believe and yet in your grace you do not shun us you meet us where we are and you offer us this living water you invite us in to participate in what you're doing Lord, can you help us to see the privilege in that? Lord, as we look at our lives and we look at our stories and, and for some of us we think, man, my story is just so insignificant. And yet you're the author of it and you're currently writing it right now. Can you help us to see the significance of what you're doing? and how you can use each and every one of us and our stories to point others to you. Can you help us to take this work serious? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, As we get ready to sit at the table, I know we've been all over the place, and so for some of you, it might look a little different. For some of you... This table, you might be reflecting of how Jesus took care of your guilt and shame, how He set you free from the bondages of your sin, how His body was broken for you, His blood was shed for you. For for, for others, it might be you, you're reminded of this wonderful privilege that you get to sit at this table, that you get to be part of the family of God, that you get to participate in what He's doing. And as you're eating it and drinking, you're declaring the Lord's death in your life. And you're saying, I must declare the Lord's death in other people's lives as I'm taking this work serious. And so wherever you are, whatever season of life that you're in, I think this table is appropriate for all people from all different walks of life, all of those who are ultimately in Jesus Christ, because it's ultimately because of Christ that we can sit at this table. And so whatever you need to reflect on, meditate on, Whether it's your guilt and shame that he took care of on the cross, do so. Whether it's the privilege and the honor, whether it's even both. Meditate on these things as we look to Christ, as we reorient our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, because we are a people that are quick to forget. We walk in one Sunday and we celebrate Christ, and then what happens Monday? We get sucked back in. This is why I think it's so important for us to do this table week in and week out as it continually changes where we're looking. Hey, stop looking at that. Look to Christ. Stop focusing. Focus on Christ, on who he is and what he's done for you. And so as we distribute these elements, meditate on these truths, and then we'll celebrate it together. Thank you, God. I'm just so overwhelmed by this wonderful privilege that we get to sit at the Lord's table not because of anything that we've done not because of anything that we've contributed but because of what Christ has done on our behalf that his body was broken for us his blood was shed for us because of his work, we are the body of Christ, the family of God. We're in the kingdom. And when life gets overwhelming at times, when we feel like we want to give up, we feel like we can no longer deal with our guilt, with our shame, or we're just frustrated at everything that's going on around us. We get to sit at the table and for a brief moment we look to christ and in humility we say this is his body that was broken for me i can eat it in remembrance of what he's done for me take it and eat it this is his blood That was shed for me, the new covenant I have in Jesus Christ. I can drink it in remembrance of Him. Take it and drink it. Our holy Father, we thank you for this privilege. May we never take this privilege for granted. May we be overwhelmed by you. Can you help us to constantly look to you can you help us to reorient our hearts our eyes and our minds can you help us to feed on your word can you help us to walk in obedience can you help us to see the urgency of this gospel work can you help us to see and and realize the wonderful reward and the joy that we have in this gospel work that we get to experience you more and more, that you become more real to us in our lives. Can you help us to see your sovereign hand in writing each and every one of our stories and using our stories for your glory as powerful tools to draw people and to point people to you. So help us to not take it for granted as we look to you. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and worship our King.